I'm Josh Hamilton, and this is the American Masters Podcast, where we have conversations with the people who change us. Today, we talk about the complicated legacy of entertainer Sammy Davis Jr., and we hear from Sammy himself through rare audio recordings captured late in his life. An atmosphere of interplay between people, an atmosphere of, uh, of linkage between cultures, that's called utilizing what you've got. And I'm not talking about being a professional do-gooder. I neither want to be a professional Jew, nor a professional black, nor a professional do-gooder. The only thing that I want to be a professional at is my performance. We're here with executive producer of American Masters, Michael Cantor, director Sam Pollard, and writer-co-producer Larry Maslin. Three members of the film team behind American Masters, Sammy Davis Jr., I've Gotta Be Me. Michael, how did this project get started? I think way back I gave Larry a copy of the book of photos that Sammy took. Throughout his life, Sammy was an amazing amateur photographer. And then we discovered there was this cache of audio recordings that Bert Boyar had saved from his conversations with Sammy around uh, Sammy Davis Jr.'s second autobiography, Why Me?, And between those two invaluable assets, the photos, the way Sammy saw the world, and the recordings where he explained the world, once we had a grant from the National Endowment of Humanities for production funding, we were off to the races. So these recordings haven't been heard before? No. These were done by Bert Boyar, who gave us permission to use them, as did Sammy's estate. And they fed into this second autobiography, but no one's really heard them. When did you first hear those, Sam, and what did you think? I was amazed at listening to those tapes at the uh, level of honesty and forthrightness that Sammy brought to those tapes, I mean, in talking to Bert. I mean, I thought a lot of things he said were things that obviously were not in his books. And uh, as I listened to those tapes, I realized there was some really good, juicy stuff that we could use in the documentary. Larry, where would you say Sammy was in life during these 1986 recordings? Well, he was actually at a tipping point. Uh, Bert went and followed him in the mid-1980s, and Sammy would be in Vegas at the Sands or wherever, and he'd go back to his hotel room and record his thoughts from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning, uh, often with a glass of uh, bourbon and some ice. You can hear the ice tinkle on some of the uh, some of the recordings. And it was him, in many ways, filling up everything from 1965 when Yes, I Can came out 20 years later and going back over some of the things in Yes, I Can that he wasn't, as Sam says, completely honest with the first time around. Let's hear from Sammy. We talked about it in the old, in the old book. We talked about the, the pressure, the real and the imaginary of being treated unjustly. Frustration of not being able to work alone, and I knew that I had growth in me, and I wanted to go, and I wanted to stretch, and there were things I wanted to do. I didn't want to offend. I want to bust out and I'm being confined. The other thing about booze is it makes you very, very sentimental and morose. You know, here I am running away from success while trying to grab it. So, Larry, Golden Boy is really important moment in, in Sammy's career. What, why is that kind of a pinnacle for him? 
He wanted to stretch himself. He wanted to do the kind of things he witnessed Frank Sinatra, his idol, doing, which was becoming a serious actor. So when this opportunity came to update Clifford Odette's 1937 play as a musical, but set it in the 1960s, have an interracial love relationship at the center of it, be a boxer, have 10 songs, have a big fight at the end, big emotional draw, be an actor, a leading actor, he found that absolutely, uh, you know, one of the greatest temptations of his life. And he did it. And he wound up doing Golden Boy on and off on Broadway, London, Chicago for about four years. What's Golden Boy the musical about? And how did the creators create this interracial love story? In the 1960s, you still had a long tradition of musical comedy. People came to see musicals to have a good time, laugh, and kind of forget about it by the time they hit the pavement. Golden Boy was a serious musical about a serious topic, which was, in this case, how would a young black man with ambition deal with the the fever heat of his ambition. So it wasn't just his ambition as a fighter. He wanted to make it as a fighter, but he also wanted to make it as a man. And he fell in love with a white woman who is the mistress of his manager. And that was a line you didn't see crossed anywhere in pop culture at the time. You didn't really see it in movies. You didn't really see it on a Broadway stage. You certainly never saw it on television. And it's sort of hard to imagine in our 21st century world, which everything goes, uh, anything comparable to the risk that he took. And he not only took the risk, but he met the challenge and he he really embraced it uh, literally and figuratively. And it's a great moment in American theater history. Take a listen to Sammy Davis Jr. talking about Golden Boy. I was on top of the world and as a the new boy in town and everything else, there was no door that wasn't open to me. There was no luxury that wasn't open to me. <clears throat> I was the Prince of Broadway, man, and, uh, and we knew we had a hit. We had three, four moments in the show, in a musical, where the people just stood and cheered. My life was show business. You knew you were in something important, the denial of his blackness is going to be that conflict. He's a fighter, he's black, he lives in Harlem, and he wants all of the glamour of the world. He wants to fight his way out of there. It was 26 hours a day that I was with Golden Boy. We do, the, we do that second act the first time in Detroit, and it rivets him. It rivets the audience. And Detroit being a town where a race riot was and all the rest of it. And we do the riot scene, there's gonna be a riot. We're going downtown and scared the out of people with, uh, we ain't bowing down no more. At the end of I Wanna Be With You, we grabbed each other and kissed and it was the first time that a man and a woman of different races had done that on the stage. Full on the mouth, embrace, in Detroit, Michigan, scared We got threats, we got letters, Paula Wayne put Darling, she had threats from the time the show opened, I think. It was constant. New York was no better. So bad in Detroit, she had to get have a bodyguard with her. Paula Wayne was subjected to this sort of racism that she didn't expect at all. What, what did you learn about that, Sam? Well, you know, here she's a, an actor on the stage with a prime, you know, one of the supreme entertainers, and in this play, and then she's kissing a black man on the stage. She didn't realize that <laughs> there's still all this rage and anger toward black people. So she was she was baffled. I mean, from reading the book, you know, and listening to her, it, it had to be a very terrifying moment for those two on that stage. Uh, they she's said that at one point she came to the theater one day and they were taking her poster outside 
down. And she said, well, because someone had machine gunned it the night before. She certainly got death threats, and she certainly got letters, and she's was just started her career. Sadly, we lost her uh, since we made the movie, but she was a young girl from Texas. This was her big break. It's probably not what she signed up for, which was to get death threats and need 24-hour security playing the lead opposite one of the greatest entertainers in America in 1964. And one night in Detroit, actually, a Klieg light exploded right at a key moment in the play. And here's Paula describing what Sammy Davis Jr. did when he thought that a shot was ringing out. We, We landed in the middle of the Detroit riots. So I went to work in a bulletproof police car. That's how I went to work. And we were in the middle of the show in I Wanna Be With You, the love scene, and Sammy kissed me. It was part of the scene. And a big plead light blew it, went like that. And it sounded like a rifle shot. And the audience went, (gasps) But quickly, Sammy turned me around and put his back to the audience and tried to cover my body. And I started to laugh. And he said, what the hell are you laughing at? And I said, Sam, no matter where that bullet goes, it's got to hit me. I stick out on all sides of you. And the audience got hysterical laughing and it, Blew away the moment, and we went right back and did the rest of the show. But that says what I know about Sammy Davis, his humanity and his bravery. And aside from all of the talent, which has been covered numerous times, I knew him as a wonderful, wonderful human being who put himself out on a limb for me a lot of times. Why do you think Sammy was such a lightning rod for controversy? Think about it. He's living during a period of intense segregation in America where, you know, the black people and white people were basically separate, primarily in the South, but also in the North. And here he comes, like a lightning rod, comes up in the 50s and becomes a major dynamo in terms of entertaining. People recognize he's a fabulous entertainer. And then he makes all these connections, the Sinatra connection, the Kim Novak connection, the the Rat Pack connection. And he's a guy who's just standing out in front and center. So everything he does is watched from the black community and the white community. In the black community, sometimes they were saying, Sammy forgot where he came from. And the white community says, who's this black guy who thinks he can hang out and take, go to Sardis and go to these clubs, you know? So he had to deal with both sides of the road all the time. So that's why he was such a lightning rod. I mean, when, when, when there was a controversy that he was dating Kim Novak, the people in the black community said he forgot where he came from. You know, when he married Maya Britt, there were black women saying, well, why is this black man marrying a, a white woman? When he was with Sinatra, people were sort of denigrating Sammy in the black community. He always had to struggle with this sort of dual the dual identity. In some ways, what Du Bois calls the double consciousness of America for black people in America. What happened with Richard Nixon? You know, I found it pretty fascinating because this was another element I didn't know about Sammy's story, about how he was treated by the Kennedy administration when Kennedy won the presidency and they had the inauguration, the inaugural ball, and he was disinvited. So here he is, you know, obviously a Democratic supporter of John F. Kennedy, supporting his presidency, and then he's disinvited. Now, fast forward to Richard Nixon being the president of the United States, and he embraces Sammy Davis Jr. So when he's doing his campaign rally in Florida and Sammy comes, Sammy, who, as we all know, would hug anybody, 
He would hug anybody. He comes out, and Richard Nixon introduces him, and he hugs Richard Nixon. Now, that hug became a major lightning rod for Sammy and particularly the black community. You know, he had done something that he wasn't supposed to do, particularly who, in terms of who Richard Nixon was. So we fast forward to 2018, and here is another formidable super talent, Kanye West, who's in the White House with Donald Trump, and he's catching the same kind of hell that Sammy caught. Because all of a sudden, you're forgetting who this man is. He doesn't care about black people, and now you are there supporting him, hugging him, talk, going on and on about how great a man he is for black people, and understanding, not even understanding the history. When Kanye says that slavery wasn't such a horrible thing, we all threw up our hands. <laughs> Take a listen to Sammy talking about his time with Richard Nixon at the White House. The things that I asked for was, what could we do in terms of positive programs in America that would make the disenfranchised Blacks, Hispanics, feel that they got a part of this country, that they have a, a stake in the country. And his thanking me uh, about for what I had done for the campaign and how this year I had been a catalyst in bringing more colored people into, and he said black people, and I told you, I think I said, black, is it okay to say black? And yeah. wrote that down in this thing. You know. I said, black is preferred. And I did the rhyme about, it. in the old days it was, if you're white, you're right. If you're brown, you can stick around. But if you're black, get in the back. I said, it's all changed around. I said, in the old days, when I was growing up, Mr. President, no one wanted to be called black. Everybody wanted to be called colored. I said, now colored to the young person on the street or the student. That's an insult. He wants his blackness. He wants to be proud of his blackness. And I said, most of the people, even the militants, they want to feel they got a stake in America. I think they look at you in terms of being the head of, a, of our nation, they want to know that you care about what they're doing. He said, well, you know, I have people who take care. We have committees and we have this. I said, I know, Mr. President, but you've got to, you've got to be there to lend some sort of credence to it. One of the things that's so admirable about Sammy is his longevity. He started as a performer during the Depression and wound up becoming so prominent in his field that he was brought to the White House to kind of school Richard Nixon in the early 1970s about how to relate as ineptly as Nixon was, how he could relate better to the black community. And he had to cycle through his own decades of how black people were thought of and what they were called and what black people called themselves. Maybe you could talk more about that, Sam. The attitude from the black community back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and in the early 60s, with the word black sounded ugly. It was a negative connotation. But when Stokely Carmichael in Selma, Alabama, started using the term black power, it became a word that people start to embrace. I mean, we were embracing not, not only the word black, but Afro-American, African-American. Those became the prominent words. And for someone from Sammy's generation, it's a hard word to change around. I mean, I was with someone in Atlanta this past week, and she still uses Negro. What's interesting is uh, James Brown is also a Nixon supporter, right? And isn't it James Brown who, you know, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, isn't do you think Sammy took something from that or they were at the other ends of I think I think they both understood the idea that we live in a capitalist nation 
and capitalism was a very important part, as we all know, what America's all about. And that's what James Brown's all about. And Sammy, in some ways, was about that, too. When James Brown, you know, was seen with Nixon at the White House, the black community was also upset with him, but not to the same level that they were with Sammy Davis Jr. I mean, Sammy Davis Jr. was booed. He was looked at, you know, people across the street when they saw Sammy Davis Jr. But James Brown didn't suffer with that. But do you think that was part and parcel of Sammy's dilemma, that he worked so hard to assimilate for decades, that when he embraced the black power movement, he was seen as somehow an inauthentic? Outlier. An outlier. Yeah. Yeah, because because James Brown was always considered a part of the black community. I mean, he was like, you know, he was like embraced by the black community because everything he did was black in the sense, you know, right. the songs, the style. Here was Sammy singing Rogers and Hart, right. Cole Porter. Yeah. You know, <laughs> unless you're unless you're of that generation, it was like passe by the time the sixties came along. Right. You know, I, I always wanted to ask you, Sam, I saw that at that Kennedy inaugural ball, doesn't Harry Belafonte bring his white wife or Sidney Poitier? And that that's not a big deal for them. Why do you think Sammy was excluded? The difference, the, the 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 complexion, in terms of here he is, short, dark black man, Jewish man with a tall, beautiful blonde wife. Now Harry's wife, Julie Belafonte, was a white woman, but the thing that people don't remember is that she always had a constant tan. I didn't think she was white when I was growing up, you know. Until later, I realized she was white. But that's why Sammy was invited. It was just such a difference to see these two together. It's like, whoa. You know? I think Sammy was also more provocative as an individual. Yeah. Uh, he had courted all this kind of tabloid press in a way that I think neither Nat King Cole nor Sidney Poitier nor Harry Belafonte ever, ever did. did for anything. No. Sam, when you think of Sammy Davis Jr., he started so young. Who do you think were his heroes growing up, and who who were most influential in his career? I think for for Sammy Davis Jr. coming up, you know, as a song and dance man, being on the circuit, the chitlin circuit, as it was called back then with all the black entertainers, you know, he was impressed with Al Jolson. He was impressed with Eddie Cantor. You know, he was impressed with Sophie Tucker. He was impressed with all these people who had really, you know, made a name for themselves on the on the Broadway circuit as dancers, as actors, as singers. And, you know, it's amazing to see that he was like at the age of four out there performing with his uncle and his dad, you know. Then to see Sammy sort of grow into becoming this phenomenal entertainer. What's Originally, it's the Will Maston Trio featuring Sammy Davis Jr. By the late 40s, it's the Will Maston Trio starring Sammy Davis Jr. because he was the headliner. He became the headliner. And you could see his influences as he got older. I mean, now King Cole, Billy Eckstein, and obviously Frank Sinatra. When you think back on your own lives, when did you first hear of Sammy or get to know Sammy? For me, it was, it's got to be 1961, 1962. I must have been 11 or 12 years old. I was watching the Ed Sullivan show. And here he comes on the stage singing and dancing and doing impressions and playing his instruments, trumpet and the bass and the piano. That's when I recognized Sammy Davis Jr. And I also had seen, by that time, Ocean's Eleven. Mm-hmm with Sinatra and Peter Lawford and Joey Bishop, you know, and Dean Martin. So Sammy was someone who in our household, everybody knew about. We all knew about Sammy Davis Jr. Because here he was, the black entertainer, the major figure, one of the black figures, the only black figure in the Rat Pack. That was a big thing because Sinatra was a god to us in our household, you know. 
How about you, Larry? I remember Sammy Davis Jr. appearing in the mid-60s in all the shows I loved. There he was on Batman. There he was on I Dream of Jeannie. There he was cutting up like this court jester on Laugh-In. And, and I thought he was a kind of goofy guy. I thought, oh, he's the goofy comedy guy, Sammy Davis. Or you'd see him on a talk show, slap his knee and laugh uproariously at something that wasn't terribly funny. And then... I think I was about uh, 9 or 10, and I came across the cast album to Golden Boy in the public library, and I thought, wait a minute, this can't possibly be the same Sammy Davis, because this guy is serious, this guy is passionate, this guy is fighting for civil rights. And then I would say the journey for me personally over the last 50 years was try to understand how this guy could be both guys. And of course, Sammy Davis was many, many guys, many personalities, many of them contradictory. And I think that's what Sam really captures in this documentary. Yeah, he was really a chameleon. I mean, you think about it, you know, when Larry's talking about seeing him on Laughing and, and all those shows, I remember him not only on the Ed Sullivan show, but seeing him on these half hour dramas like The, the Rifleman and Lawman. That's where I saw Sammy Davis Jr. as an actor. I said, wow, this guy's got chops, you know. And then I could see him on The Ed Sullivan Show doing Jimmy Stewart, doing Edward G. Robinson, doing Jimmy Cagney, you know, impressions, and then dancing and then playing instruments. I thought this guy was phenomenal. What do you find heroic about Sammy? This man saw nothing that he let get in his way. You know, there was no obstacle he he wasn't going to try to overcome. You know, it's not to say he wasn't afraid. He was. You know, I mean, he would tell stories about the fear of going out every day with my bread and the reactions they were going to get. Talked about the trauma that he had to deal with when he was in the service. He talked about, you know, going out to perform with a crowd that he thought might be hostile to him. You know, he always wanted to embrace people. And he said it was his talent. He knew that his talent could help him overcome anything. So to me, that's true, tremendously heroic. Tremendously heroic. I mean, and it's an interesting thing for me to to be at this stage of my life, to look back at this man who some people would say was Uncle Tom in the 70s when he, when he embraced Nixon, but he wasn't. He was a man who had a lot of ambition, who had a lot of conflicts, you know, who made mistakes, but he kept charging ahead. And no matter what obstacles he faced, you know, be it in terms of relationships with the black community, his relationships with the white community, his relationships during the civil rights movement, his relationships after he hugged Nixon, he was always going to be who he was. He never changed. Sam Power, director of Sammy Davis Jr., I've Got to Be Me, and Larry Maslon, writer and co-producer of the film, thank you all for coming to the American Masters podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. So, Josh, what do you think we should end the podcast with this week? Well, I thought it'd be interesting to hear this outtake from the American Masters Digital Archive. And it's the late Paula Wayne as she remembers first auditioning for her role in Golden Boy. So I got an audition for Golden Boy, and I auditioned for a year. Finally, I was going to do the final audition for Sammy Davis. Sam said, now we'll do I Want to Be With You. And he walked across the stage... I I couldn't do anything. I was in such a panic. I mean, that was like, for me in show business, like the Statue of Liberty walking to you, you know? It was just unbelievable. So I I ran off the stage, and I ran across the street to Sardi's, because Vincent Sardi's has always been very nice to me. And I'm sitting at the bar, and I'm crying my eyes out because I blew it. I blew a whole year of my life, and I made a fool out of myself in front of the biggest star in the world. 
and I feel this arm around me. And he said, look, it was Sammy. And he said, honey, am I that bad? And I said, well, I don't know if you're that bad, but you're certainly that big. And he said, come on, we can do this. Can you imagine that? That's, that was Sammy Davis to me. So we walked across the street and we went back up on the stage and I sang my heart out with him and I got the part. And I believed firmly that Golden Boy made a lot of difference in a lot of areas, which theater can do. That's the beautiful part of theater. Theater can make a difference. And I think we did. I know in my case, it taught me a lot about compassion and about, oh, what is the word I'm looking for? Acceptance. The American Masters podcast was created by Michael Cantor and is produced by Joe Skinner. And co-produced by Josh Hamilton, with sound engineering by Josh Broom, John Berman, and Gerard Collins. For American Masters, we thank series producer Julie Sachs, supervising producer Junko Sunishima, and production coordinator Krista Campbell. Our theme music is by Infinity Shred. The 2015 interview with Paula Wayne is an outtake from American Masters' Sammy Davis Jr., I've Gotta Be Me, directed by Sam Pollard. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe. And please give us a rating or review. See you in a couple weeks.